Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, your word is more desirable than gold, even much fine gold. Your word is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Help us now to value and prize your word in our hearts and help us, O Lord, to receive your word, relish your word, and enjoy your word to your glory and to our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we'll be turning our attention this morning uh, to St. Luke's Gospel. We'll be starting at the beginning, so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up uh, to St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. And as you find your place in your Bibles, I just want to take a moment to say a few things about this chap called St. Luke, this fellow that God used to author this gospel. One of the things that I've grown to appreciate about St. Luke is that he brings to the Bible a lot of original material. In St. Luke's Gospel, we find stories, parables, and sayings of Jesus that are found nowhere else in the Bible. For example, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 of this Gospel. And you may be interested to know that almost all of what St. Luke will tell us in these chapters is only found in this Gospel. Only in St. Luke's Gospel do we learn about dear old Zechariah and Elizabeth. Only in St. Luke's Gospel can we read the beautiful songs of Mary and Zechariah. And only in St. Luke's Gospel do we learn about the angel Gabriel's announcement to the Virgin Mary. All of this material is a great gift from God that comes to us from him and through St. Luke. And so why, we might ask, does St. Luke have so much original material? Well, you see, I'm convinced that God chooses his servants well. And when God looked down from heaven upon St. Luke, he found a man who was fastidious, detail-oriented, and keenly interested in the facts. St. Luke was a medical doctor, a man of science. And as such, he was a man who prized accuracy and precision. All of this is evident in the little note that St. Luke put at the beginning of his gospel. If you have your Bibles open, you can see in verses 1 through 4 that St. Luke put, uh, took it upon himself, took upon himself the task of compiling a narrative of the things that God had done in the world. St. Luke did not invent his story, nor did he set out to write some sort of abstract theological treatise. Rather, he went to the sources and compiled a narrative of what actually happened. St. Luke went out looking for the facts. We see that he went to the eyewitnesses, those who had actually witnessed the events of which he wrote. We see that he went to the ministers of the word, which at that time would certainly have included Jesus' apostles, who had followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry and witnessed the things that Jesus had done. And based on his writing about Jesus' mother, Mary, we can assume that St. Luke even interviewed Mary, who knew the Lord Jesus from the point of his conception. Suffice to say, St. Luke was a thorough and dogged pursuer of the facts. If we then look at verse 3 and 4, we see two great reasons for which St. Luke wrote his gospel. One, we see that St. Luke wanted to provide a man named Theophilus and all of his other readers with an orderly account of what happened. And two, 
St. Luke wanted Theophilus and all his other readers to have certainty concerning the things that had happened. And you know, friends, these words are not just an expression of St. Luke's heart, but they're an expression of God's heart towards us. God, the Holy Spirit, breathed out these words and inspired St. Luke so that we might have an orderly account of all that happened and so that we might have certainty concerning the things that God did through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I'd now actually like to pray again and ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would fulfill these very purposes in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, Holy Spirit, you have given us these words through your servant Luke so that we might have an orderly account of all that happened through the Lord Jesus. And you have given us these words so that we may have certainty concerning all these great things. Bless us now by casting away all doubt and filling us with all certainty that we may say with all conviction, surely our God has done all these great things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now that we've asked for God's help, let's dive in at verse 5. And as we look at this story, I want you to know that all of this is, in fact, very stunning. As we go through these stories, we'll see that God was up to something very exciting and interesting. Perhaps some of you are familiar with these stories. And if you are, perhaps you might imagine that you're hearing them for the very first time. Looking at these stories, I want us first to notice the great kindness of God towards his people. The kindness of God is on full display in these stories. We see that God looked down from his heaven and had regard for a dear old couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth. God sent the angel Gabriel to Zechariah while he was at work in the temple, and the angel immediately assured Zechariah by saying, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. You know, the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. <laughs> you hear it time and time again. And here we see God's kindness expressed in his willingness to listen to the prayers of his people. We see that God is kindly disposed towards his people and that he loves to hear their prayers. God is not aloof towards his people. Rather, God is kind towards his people. When the angel Gabriel refers to the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth, He's referring to their prayers for a child. We're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth were quite old, so you can imagine, I'm sure, sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for a long time and that they may have been tempted to despair or wonder if God was even listening to them. They desperately wanted a child. They had been praying earnestly for a child, and yet they had come into their old age childless. But God had heard their prayers and from all eternity had planned to answer those prayers in his good way. We say someone is kind if they listen to us and care about the things we say. And so, dear friends, we can say it about God. He's, he's kind because he listens to us. We also see the kindness of God in his willingness to care about Zechariah and Elizabeth's specific situation. Here we see that God accomplishes what no government, corporation, or institution has succeeded in accomplishing. God cares for the whole while also caring for the individual. The events that we're looking at this morning are cosmic in scope. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their son John were caught up in God's great plan to save the world. And so in one sense, these three people are very small and very insignificant when considered in the context of God's 
great plan. Yet, in the midst of it all, God never says that these people are small. And he never says that these people are insignificant. Rather, as he's bringing about the salvation of the whole world, he kindly blesses a dear old couple in precisely the way that they've been asking for. God gives them a son. God's kindness is applied at the cosmic level, and it's also applied at the individual level. And we would do well to read this story and say, wow, wasn't God kind to Zechariah and Elizabeth? As we're living our lives, we can be sure on the one hand that God is carrying out his plan at the cosmic level, at the highest level. The complex story of human history as a whole is very much in God's control. It's his story. However, on the other hand, we can also be sure that God is working out his plan in each and every one of our individual lives. God is not too taken up with the world to care about little old you or little old me. As St. Augustine once said, God loves each of us as if there was only one of us. He cares about our specific situation. God's kindness is not just applied generally, it's applied specifically. And this is one of the most beautiful things about the first two chapters of St. Luke's Gospel. We see God blessing and dealing kindly with individuals in a very tender and a very uh, intimate and remarkable way. Now another thing we ought to note about God's kindness is that God's kindness is part and parcel to his lavish generosity. God's kindness is often expressed in his giving of great and lavish gifts. God did not only give Zechariah and Elizabeth the child that they were asking for, but he gave them a child who the angel Gabriel says will be great before the Lord. God stacked blessing upon blessing and gave Zechariah and Elizabeth a son who would not only bless them, but who would also be God's blessing to many others. God made Zechariah and Elizabeth wait for a child only to bless them with more than they ever could have asked or imagined. In St. Matthew's Gospel, we have these words of Jesus. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give, give good things to those who ask him? Perhaps some of you have started to, uh, to do your Christmas shopping. You started to get your presents ready and you feel a little giddiness inside as you imagine your loved ones opening their presents on Christmas Day. I love presents and I love giving people presents and I love getting presents. Well, God's like that too, but to an infinitely greater degree. God loves his people and is eager to bless them with remarkable gifts. In the story that we have before us this morning, we see that God's kindness towards Zechariah and Elizabeth is expressed in his giving to them of a great, lavish, remarkable gift, the gift of a child. Now to make a final comment on a subject that we'll spend endless ages thinking about, we see that God's kindness also leads him to remove the reproach of his people. We're going to spend forever thinking about God's kindness, but I'd like to make one final comment. He removes the reproach of his people. We see this in Elizabeth's exclamation in verse 25. And I'll use the New International Version here because it's clearer than the ESV. The Lord has done this for me, says Elizabeth. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace amongst the people. God's kindness 
is such that he shows favor towards us and lifts reproach, disgrace, and condemnation from off of our lives, from off of our shoulders. You know, we're given no sense that Elizabeth ever complained about her situation, and we're given no sense that Elizabeth ever doubted God because of her situation. We know that she prayed, and we're told that Elizabeth was righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. She was a good, faithful Israelite. The reproach she would have suffered would have come from the assumption that her barrenness was the result of God's punishment. She might have assumed it, and others likely would have assumed it too, that perhaps there was some sin in her life or some bad thing in her life that God was punishing. And so when God visits her with this great kindness and ends her suffering, she recognizes it as a great gift from God, and she praises God for it. Elizabeth rightly recognized her child as a great gift from God. The gift of a son was not only wonderful in and of itself, but it served to show Elizabeth and those around her that God loved her and wanted to bless her. As St. Luke begins to tell us of the great things that God has done through his son Jesus, he shows us God dealing kindly with his people. He shows us that God listens to his people, cares about their situation, blesses them abundantly, and removes their reproach. The whole gospel, the whole Bible, is the story of God dealing kindly with his people. So it's not surprising to find this note of divine kindness right at the very beginning of St. Luke's gospel. Now, along with the great kindness on display in this story, I also want us uh, to notice that God is sending good news into the world via a messenger. God sent his, his angel, Gabriel, to Zechariah to deliver the good news of a child. Gabriel says to Zechariah about the promised child, he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And then Gabriel himself calls his message good news. One of the things that you'll notice as we make our way through this series on the first couple chapters of St. Luke's Gospel is that there's a lot of angels, and there's a lot of good news. In fact, there is a disproportionate number of angels in these chapters. Compared to the rest of the Bible, these two chapters are absolutely jam-packed, full of angels. When the angels arrive, they are either bringing good news or celebrating good news. The Bible is filled with good news. It's filled with promises of good things to come, but it's striking to find such a concentration of good news from God's heavenly messengers in, de- in just two chapters. And so as we read through these chapters and see all of the angels and hear all of the good news, we would do well to conclude that God is up to something, where right? God's starting to move in a particular way in the world. The good news arrives in these verses in two ways. First, there's the good news of a new child. That's exciting enough. Zechariah and Elizabeth were thrilled. But there's also the good news of fulfilled prophecy. Zechariah and Elizabeth's boy uh, was God's means of fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah and Elizabeth had been taught by God's word to expect the prophet Elijah to return before the coming of the Lord. These are the last words of the Old Testament. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. These 
these words are from the book of the prophet Malachi, chapter 4. We just heard them read a moment ago. And they're the very last words of the New Testament. And so the good news of Zechariah and Elizabeth's child was not just good news for them, but good news for the whole world. God was fulfilling his promise. God was fulfilling his prophecy for the sake of the people of God. The angel Gabriel makes this clear when in verse 17 he says, And we will go on before the Lord, and he, that's John, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel Gabriel's words unmistakably echo the words of Malachi's prophecy. And this is noteworthy because it shows us once again that God is up to something. He was up to something in the world. The fulfillment of prophecy should always make us think to ourselves, oh, God has some purpose here. He's on the move. He's doing something. And so the good news at this point in St. Luke's Gospel is that God has kept his promise and that he has begun the process of fulfilling his 400-year-old prophecy. Zechariah and Elizabeth get a child, yes, but the world gets the good news that God is on the move again. This is why many will rejoice at the birth of John, namely because John's birth is a great act of God. It's a sign that God is going to bless his people and visit his people again. (coughs) Sorry. And so we see that God is visiting his people with kindness. We see that he's sending good news into the world through his messenger. But I want us also to notice this, that these few verses are all about God bringing a great prophet into the world. We've looked at a few parts of it, but let's look again at what the angel Gabriel says about the child promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth, beginning at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for their God. The words of Gabriel make it clear that John, this little boy, is to be a great prophet. The prophets were those who God used uh, to speak his word to his people, and they were the people that God used to call his people back to himself. And this is exactly what John is being sent in the world to do. John was to be like the great prophet Elijah, speaking God's truth to worldly power and also reminding the people that God was calling them back to himself. John was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A people ready to receive the Lord and a people ready to meet their Lord. A people ready to meet their maker, as we sometimes say. Suffice to say, the bringing of a great prophet into the world showed that God was up to something significant. And so, friends, you see, the the tectonic plates of God's story are always moving. For the most part, it seems like they're moving pretty slowly, just chugging along. God's story chugs along slowly but surely, making its way towards its eventual end. But every once in a while, there's a sort of rumble. And then there's an earthquake, and sometimes there's even what you might call a volcanic eruption. God's story is continuous, but every once in a while, 
God gives the world a good little shake. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel and this promised child, were the rumblings before a great and world-shaking event. They were the rumblings before a great earthquake. This first story in St. Luke's Gospel shows us that God was up to something significant, momentous, and good. He was about to shake the world again. And so the question I have for you is this. Do you believe any of it? Do you believe any of it? St. Luke wrote this gospel so that you might have certainty concerning these events. And so, do you believe any of it? Do you believe it actually happened? Do you believe in the story's facticity? I hope you do. I hope you do because it's a wonderful thing to live in a world where God sends angels with messages and blesses dear old couples with a blessed child. I hope you believe it because it's true. And at a deeper level, I hope you believe it all because I hope you that you believe in, receive, and know the God that these stories reveal. A God who is kind. A God who listens to our prayers, cares about our situation, lavishes us with good gifts, and removes our reproach. A God who sends good news into the world. Good news that hits us at the individual level and also at the cosmic level. A God who raises up great prophets to speak his very words and call his people back to himself. A God who shakes the world. Do you, dear friends, believe in a God who can shake the world? Do you believe in a God who has shaken the world and will shake the world? Do you believe that at any moment now the Lord God Almighty could send out his rumblings and then shake the world again? Shake it to its very pillars. I really hope you do. It's interesting, you know. Zechariah was a holy man, a very pious man. And I don't think it would be a stretch to say that Zechariah was very doctrinally sound. He was what you might call a model Israelite, a model believer. And yet, when an angel of God appeared to Zechariah and brought him good news from heaven, Zechariah could hardly believe it. In fact, he questioned it. He questioned how it could possibly happen. He said to the angel Gabriel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel Gabriel responded, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so on paper, Zechariah believed it all. But when he was presented with an incredible expression of the realities that he believed in, he questioned it and doubted it. His doubt was gently punished by God. He was made mute until the moment when his son was born. But the promise was never revoked, right? God is kind, and so he doesn't take away the gift. He just gently punishes, gently rebukes Zechariah. The stories that bring us up to the great story of Christmas are stories that remind us that God is intimately involved in the history of humanity, in the history of the whole creation. And the risk is that our view of these stories and our view of the God that these stories reveal have become what you might call domesticated, or they've become stunted. The risk is that we harden our hearts against these dazzling, world-shaking stories and reduce them down to mere moral lessons. Or reduce them down by saying, well, that happened in the past, but it'll never happen again. Together as his church, I hope our deep conviction is that our God is a God who is up to great things in the world. 
I hope we wake up in the morning convinced that our God is up to great things. I don't mean to dismiss the daily constant plodding along that is required in the Christian life, but part of God's encouragement to us in our daily lives is that we're all caught up in a mysterious and remarkable way in the great narrative of God. And that this great narrative, this story, is a thrilling narrative which excites the heart and draws us along toward the great purposes of God. God has promised to shake the world again, and so we as his people wait for him to do it. God has promised to send his son again, and so we wait for the Lord to do it. God, dear friends, is up to great things in the world. We see that that was true back in Zechariah and Elizabeth's day, and I hope you know that is true in our day. And so let me finish with this prayer from Francis Schaeffer. To eat, to breathe, to beget. Is this all there is? Chance configuration of Adam against Adam, of God against God? I cannot believe it. Come, Christian triune God who lives. Here we are. Shake the world again. Amen.